those are the big questions. Just what's your plan? Who's your manager? Has he torn it? Has equity torn it? Any surprise is going to come up. Is the equity available? And then your financing. Best ever listeners, do you want to make more money on your real estate projects? Well, I'm guessing that I'm hearing you say, oh yeah, baby. <laughs> well, guess what, my friends? Today's best ever sponsor, Fund That Flip, is working with well, one of our previous best ever guests who has the most po- one of the most popular episodes, Jay Scott. If you aren't familiar with this episode, then go check that out, episode 217. If you are, because you're a loyal best ever listener, then you know that he knows how the heck to both analyze deals, especially flips, how to optimize the profits on those flips and how to look at the market. Because of that, Fund That Flip, today's sponsor, has worked with him and put together a guide that is the seven tips to increase your real estate profits in today's market. Go check that out. Go get that guide. I've read through it myself. I've learned a lot of things from it, from how to analyze the market cycles, as well as how to optimize profits and not lose money or mitigate your risk for losing money on your deals go check it out fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever that's f-u-n-d-t-h-a-t-f-l-i-p.com forward slash best ever you're going to learn the tools to better understand your local market and position your business for success you're going to know how to analyze the real estate cycle and how to use short-term investing to capitalize on the market cycle and seven concrete actionable tips to make more money on your deals. Fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate podcast. We don't do any of the fluffy stuff. We cut it out and we only talk about the best advice that moves your business forward. Spoken to Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank, Robert Kiyosaki, the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and many others. With us today, we have a returning best ever guest, and he's going to talk to us about, drumroll, how he is about to close on a 240-unit apartment building in South Carolina. How are you doing, John Cohen? I am not doing bad, Joe. How about yourself? I'm doing really well, my friend. And when the team member of mine who's responsible for booking guests saw on Facebook that you had this 240 unit, I was like, well, I got to talk to John. And I was like, I agree. He's going to have some good info for us. He's John's buying this 240 unit for over 20 million bucks. I'll let him get into details. And by the way, best ever listeners, this is Situation Saturday where we talk about a situation that our best ever guest was in and how he or she overcame it. In this case, we got a he on the call. John actually has been on the show before, like I mentioned, in episode 345. If you want to listen to his best ever advice, it's your guide to direct mail, cold calling, and multifamily purchasing. That's episode 345. Now, that being said, John, how about you give us a little bit more about your background and then let's roll into this 240 unit. Sure. A little bit about me. I was in finance. I uh, got out of college. I played baseball in college. Graduated. Parents told me, get a job or get out of the house. Some choice words. So I picked job as a good alternative as opposed to being homeless. Um, <laughs> and went through finance. I hated my job. Luckily, I was good at it that I was able to make some money where I was able to invest in real estate. I started doing smaller things uh, in the tax lien space. 
got a little bit better, started doing some flips, and then uh, became a commercial broker for Marcus and Millichap. When I became a commercial broker, realized I was in a bigger game selling buildings and was buying smaller stuff. I met a mentor of mine, and he sort of bridged the gap and sort of brought what I was doing as a broker, as a profession, and what I was doing as an investor, bridge it together and said, you know, you can do this on a larger level. Would you be interested? And I was absolutely interested because when I was a stockbroker in finance, I wanted to do what I was doing instead of selling stocks and bonds. I wanted to do real estate. But the Jobs Act and all that stuff that wasn't around yet, it was not blue sky laws. You really couldn't do that. So, uh, you know, four years later, actually two years after I left being a broker, started my company. And then three years since then, that's when I got into the syndication side of uh, multifamily properties. All right. Well, perfect segue. So you got 240 units. How did you find it and what's the deal with it? Deal is a uh, 240 units in Simpsonville, South Carolina. It was brought to me by a broker. It was not a quiet listing. It's just a regular marketed deal with a broker that I have a very good relationship with. Now, I did tour the deal and see the deal prior to it went to market, but the seller of the deal was adamant about listing it because he knew he would get a better price doing it that way. In November of last year, I actually toured a 100 unit that the same owner owned by a different brokerage company, and they had it priced way higher, and it was never going to get there. You couldn't finance it. It was not that high of a deal where you put a bridge loan on it. Long story short, knowing the brokers in that market, they toured me through this property. I liked it. I stayed on top of it, came to market. I was very familiar with the asset. I'd done kind of a full due diligence, but my manager toured it, property condition report. You know, I brought all trades through to get very comfortable with it. And when the deal came out, I had a very aggressive offer out of the box with hard money day one, which is why we won the deal. Because we were top two offers. And then the day of best and final a group out of Atlanta came in, a very strong group that has closed over 12 deals this year with the exact same offer as us, actually a little bit higher, with no hard money. The owner wanted hard money. The owner was a long-term owner. He's owned the property for 10 years, and he wanted to sell it to a group that was going to do the same thing. We're getting a 12-year Fannie Mae loan, uh, and that's why we want it with the hard money. I was very comfortable with the hard money because I was very familiar with the property through owning 200 units in the market, having a great manager, and having a very good relationship with a broker. So that's sort of the whole story on how the deal came to me, why we were confident enough to offer what we did to uh, win the deal. All right. The way you won the deal, basically, was you put in hard money up day one. How much are you putting up? We are putting 100000 hard on contract signing. Okay. I was recently in a best and final, and we were going through this very similar process that's where this question I'm about to ask will come from. But does that go into escrow or does that go directly into the seller's bank account? It's going into escrow, but it's not refundable. So if for whatever reason we walk or something goes wrong, he gets to keep that money, but we're not putting it into his account mm-hmm. yet. Uh, and he was comfortable with that. I would recommend doing it that way just to keep everything kosher, but that's just my two cents. <laughs> right. Yep. In theory, it's semantics because if non-refundable, then it's non-refundable, but there is a difference. And I was recently on, like I said, a deal where they wanted us to wire the money directly to their bank account versus escrow. And so the best ever listeners, you might come across that. All right. So you've got 240 units, your stock in it, you knew it, it was going to market, went to market, 
What was the bidding process like? How many rounds were there? Did you have a seller-buyer call with the brokers? Any of that? Yes. The first round of offers was, I believe there was 12 or 15 offers. Now, luckily for us, there was another property in the same area. It was 272 units that the call for offers was two days before this one. And the best and final was two days before this as well. We offered on that as well. The same broker. We pulled them straight up. All our eggs are going into this, into the 240 units. We had 12 deals in the pipeline that we were tracking. And I told all the brokers the same story and say, listen, I want to be in here in case anything happens. Now, luckily for us, the 240 unit was the last deal. So the other offers, they were strong, but they all had the, I'm telling you that if I win both deals, I'm picking the 240 unit. That also helped with the seller as well because they saw that we were committed to that property. But because the other property is so close and it was about a $28 million deal, it was 27, it was right in the same price range. A lot of the buyers went after one or the other. So mm-hmm. it split the offers. So there was about 12 or 15 offers in the first round of offers for the 240 unit. And then best and final, they took five. And then from best and final, they went to an interview with two. And then this other group came out of nowhere last day. So they had a seller buyer interview with three. And then after that interview, it was about, maybe 48 hours that day we won the deal that he countered us. You know, we were at 22 million, 75,000. The higher offer was 22.2. He said, if we meet in the middle, we said, yes, with hard money. He said, good, it's your deal. We're actually just in the process of finishing up PSAs today, which is exciting. Oh, I just got a text from the broker that they're comfortable with it. And we should be getting a signed copy hopefully today. <laughs> when are you scheduled to close? Uh, we have a closing a 30 day due diligence and 30 day financing. And then one thing we tried to do is get an access agreement. We thought it would be more beneficial to us and the seller to get an access agreement while we were negotiating PSA so we can actually shorten our due diligence. But the seller actually put in the LOI that within 10 days of a signed LOI, his lawyer will draw up a contract. And then we have 14 days to negotiate contracts. So he actually gave us an extra 25 days that we didn't even need. We didn't want. We wanted to be different and then shorten our time frame. But he said he would deliver all due diligence documents prior to signing the PSA. So we were wow. like, well, if you're going to give us all the documents, why can't we do due diligence? So the reason why he didn't want to do the access agreement, he thought that we were doing the access agreement to avoid the hard money, where while we were negotiating contract, if we got through anything and we saw something we didn't like, well, then we would have walked. So I get where he's coming from. It wasn't our intentions at all. Our intentions were to see if we can close quicker. But he looked at it as a way of saying, well, if they find something, they won't give me hard money, then I'll have to go to another group who has no hard money. Now, there's two ways to look at that. Some people say, well, is there a problem and he's hiding it? And others say exactly how we thought. He just wants that commitment from some people. So, you know, two schools of thought. It did raise some concerns that he wanted to do it that way. So one thing we did throw in the contract was mold, termites, plumbing. We just threw in some stuff that say, hey, we're not going to walk if there's a problem but we have to do something if there's a significant problem that you know about or that you willingly withhold, which is pretty standard in any contract, and he didn't have a problem with that. What questions were asked of you on the seller-buyer call? The big questions, you know, who you are, what do you own in the area, who's your manager. Those were the big ones, and then just a little bit about the group, a little bit about the investors. Did all equity tour it? Do you have a, an approval process? Is your capital ready? My investor is using the 1031 of a property he's selling and it's closing in five days. Luckily for us, the broker that's listed this deal 
same brokers that are selling the other property. So they were on our side saying, listen, the deal, the deal, that deal's closing in five days. That's why we were so comfortable with expediting our closing because that deal's closing in five days. Even with an extension, we still have plenty of time. They've already used their first extension. So the next extension, they'd have to pay for it. It wouldn't go towards purchase price. It would go towards increasing purchase price, not decreasing purchase price. The seller wanted to know, is your equity available? Has everyone seen it? You know, all those questions, the brokers ask us there. And then you want to know our plan. What are you budgeting? What are your plans? What are you seeing here? And what are you trying to deliver? And I believe we won the deal on me going through, you know, there's a 10-year, 12-year hold, Fannie Mae loan. Long-term, we're doing about $5,000 a door in renovation, mostly updated appliances, updated hardware, cabinet fronts, and uh, blowing out the gym. The gym's very small for the type of property. We're going to make it a very nice clubhouse gym, outdoor sitting area, bar type that goes out to the pool. And I explained that to the seller, and I think he basically said the same thing. The property's only been owned by three people since it's been built in 1990. And it's in great condition, and we want to keep it that way. You know, we don't want someone coming in here blowing it through. We wanted more of the long-term buyer, and that was the big question. And then other than that, just, you know, we asked him some questions, you know, why are you looking to sell, what else do you own, just to see if there was some other opportunities that we could work out together. Those are the big questions, just what's your plan, who's your manager, has he torn it, has equity toward it, any surprises going to come up, is the equity available, and then your financing. He wanted to know what we underwrote for, you know, what type of loan, LTV rate. We had a term sheet from Arbor, so we were prepared for that. They've seen it, they underwrote it. So uh, we basically put all our cards on the table. We were very prepared, and I think you like that. You're older guy, old school guy, so I think he appreciated that we came to the table with everything, and there was no hiding anything. We basically put everything out on the table and said, here you go. Who on your side attended the call? Me and my one investor at the equity. We were on the call together, and then on their side, he had his manager and him and the two brokers. How did you meet your investor who's putting in the equity from the 1031 exchange? Small world. We have a couple mutual friends, a couple family friends, and one of my very good family friends, he used to lease office space from my investor, and... He, my, my family friend was the one who in, actually introduced me to Chris, my mentor, and he also introduced my investor to Chris. So we met that way basically just through the grapevine, a ton of people we know, and then the, the way that we came together, I was down in Charleston touring property. My brother owns a butcher shop in Long Island, and the restaurant right next door was an investor in my investor's Charleston deal with my mentor. And when I was down there, I got home and he said, hey, my buddy owns about 600 units in Charleston. He owns everything. I want to introduce you. You know, maybe he'll do one of your deals. He set up the meeting. We got lunch and we started talking and little did we know we knew all the same people. He basically said, hey, I'm selling a building in Manhattan, selling a property. I need to put this somewhere. And uh, he came together with me. He's also my investor in the 200 unit in Greenville as well. So he put part of 1031 in there, and then he's got another property selling that he's going to 1031 to this. So it was just like through the grapevine, people you know going into your network. Facebook is really what put it together because my brother told the guy who owns a restaurant that I was in Charleston, and he saw it on Facebook, and that's how he said, hey, call my buddy. And uh, that's really through the grapevine and Facebook. I mean, that's mm-hmm. sort of how we came together. Wow. How do you have it structured with him 
as far as the GPLP? So the way that we did it, because his 1031, he actually, in his property, there's, there's one other partner. So the way that we are for the balance sheet and loan, we did it as a, it's obviously a tenant in common because he has about 80% of the money coming from the sale of one property and then 20% coming from a sale of a property that already sold. And that's coming into this deal. So GP is me and him. And then LP is the partners on the other properties. And what we're doing with investors, himself included, we're doing a 90-10 split on cash flow, on 90-10 split on sale, acquisition fee, asset management to me, and then uh, a hurdle of, I'm not having another deal that I'm working on, so I'm getting deal merged, but I think it's a hurdle of 14%, the split goes 80-20. So sweetheart deal for an investor, but then again, on the investor relations side for a sponsor, because you know this just about the rest, makes your life a whole hell of a lot easier when you got one guy as opposed to any more than one. So my life gets a little bit easier. So uh, he got a very, very fair deal, I believe. I think I got a fair deal as well. That's how it's structured on the GPLP and splits. What percent is the acquisition fee of the purchase price? It was a 1% acquisition fee, which my investor is one of the nicest guys I know. And the last year we did, we did very, something very similar. And then all travel expenses, which I would normally bill through closing, he basically asked me, hey, I'll give you an acquisition fee, but you, know, you pay for this stuff. And I said, okay. And then this deal, he basically said, are you comfortable with that or do you want more? And I was like, honestly, no. I mean, we've closed, that deal closed in May. This deal's going to close in October. And what's more important for me and any one of my investors is, especially where I'm at in my career, I'm not a seasoned veteran by all means. You know, I'm still building my business. One thing that I want to do is separate myself was, you know, really give them, you know, it's more important for them to get their returns and build that relationship. So for future, you can sort of set yourself up to say, you know, this is what it is to invest with me. But getting there, you got to give up some stuff. And I have no partners on the deal. It's just me and him. So I didn't have to give up a lot. And I think a 1% fee is fair. You know, 1% to 3% is pretty fair in the industry. Some people go up to five, but we were able to pay a little bit more, not only with a 1031, but I also didn't kill the deal with fees. Because if I would have put a 3% fee on it, I would have come down another 250000 in my offer. I lose the deal. So the 12-year deal, there's a lot of cash flow, a lot of asset management to go around. So I figure, you know, up front, I'll make it on the back end as opposed to just, you know, killing the deal out of the box. And what's the asset management fee? One and a half percent of the gross collected. Yeah. Oh, gross collected. Got it. How do you pay that to yourself? Do you do that monthly or do you do quarterly distributions? Depends on the deal. If there's heavy lifting going on, I'm not going to handcuff the cash flow. I'll pay it semi-annually, annually even. If the deal is going and it's running smooth, yes, my manager, you know, she puts it as a line item and they write me a check. But it just, it just depends on the deal. This deal, the first three months of any deal, you know, it's a takeover. It's going to go up, it's going to go down, things are going to happen. So you got to be a little careful to not handcuff the property. I'll probably do semi-annually because it's a pretty clean property. We're doing renovations on expiration. So we're not going in there guns blazing, vacating half the property. So it should run pretty well. The cash flow should be pretty strong. So I'll do every six months, you know, semi-annually, I think is a pretty good number on this. Maybe that's what the plan is. I'll know that uh, plans can change. (laughs) Well, is there anything else that you wanted to mention about this deal that you think the best ever listeners should know? This deal is just the definition of economies of scale. Having management, 
down the road in Greenville, uh, up in Taylor's, 200 units, and then 240 units, probably 10, 12 miles south, you really see how your underwriting can change. Now, it's not that, oh, you're going to have one manager for that and you're going to pay less, but you just get comfortable that your manager, I mean, we work with Blue Ridge. Blue Ridge is a very large regional company in the southeast. They know the market like the back of their hand, but tweak it here and there, you can see how it helps. You know, you give them another asset, you step up in their level. You're there, you know, you did a $10 million deal, a $22 million deal, and you can see how using the right management company, a regional management company, and how big Blue Ridge is and how big I'd like to go be. We, you know, we fit their model as third-party managers of what they want to help us with, and that's what I see. But, you know, that's for all the listeners, you know, the economy, the scale of multifamily is the one lesson learned here. And I think I said this on the show last time. If I told anybody, you know, you're looking to buy 20 or 50, I say wait an extra six months, educate yourself properly, and go to the 100 first. Because I have more time on my 48 unit than any deal I have in my portfolio. And my 200 unit, I spend probably a fifth of the amount of time. You just get better reporting, better service. Everything is better with a better region or with a better manager. There's a, there's a chain of command. And it's economies of scale right out of the box. That's what I would say. Anyone took one thing from this, economies of scale. Hmm. Well, that is one takeaway as well as <laughs> a whole host of other things from talking about how to approach seller-buyer conversations when you're in the best and final round, what questions are going to be asked of you, the types of responses that you should have, the way you structure this deal with your 1031 investor, how you met the 1031 investor, the fees you're making as a result of structuring the deal, and then, yes, the economy to scale also and getting the 240 units. So congratulations on this deal. I hope you do well. I've really enjoyed staying in touch with you for a little while now, and it seems like a couple years. I don't know if I'm just making that up or not. It's right around there. Uh, I think it was around September of 2014. So we're coming up pretty close at two-year mark. Uh, and definitely time has flying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's I, I just love seeing someone doing basically the same thing I'm doing and just talking to you about things that you've learned and just because I'm constantly learning as well. So really appreciate you spending some time with myself and the Best Ever listeners. Hope you have a Best Ever weekend, and we'll talk to you soon. Awesome, Joe. Thank you. And uh, it was a pleasure. If you're a wholesaler or wanting to wholesale, then you've got to check out this video. It's at wholesalinginc.com. It's a interview that Tom Kroll, and if you recognize Tom's name, well, that's because he was a guest on episode 395. He has documented his conversation with a motivated seller. So you hear from when he gets out of his car all the way to the very end when he's talking to the neighbors about different houses on the street. If you're into wholesaling or want to get into wholesaling, go listen to it. Go to wholesalinginc.com and go check that out.